Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we are today. Returning to our a look at the book series as we're moving through the Bible, summarizing the books, each one in a row. This is installment number 57, so I'm reminded to say thank you for your patience. You're hanging in there. You're doing real well. 2 Timothy is where we will be today, starting in chapter 1 and moving through the entire book in summary. And here's the key concept for this morning. Fight the good fight of faith. It is a fight. Fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy. Paul penned these words probably in the year A.D. 67. And when Paul writes these words, he is once again in prison in Rome. But this time, he is not under house arrest. He doesn't have the privileges of groups coming and going as he had in his earlier imprisonment. This time, Paul is in a dungeon. And tradition tells us that the dungeon is what we now know as the Mamertine prison. I think we have a picture we can show you of that prison. These are the staircases. This is just off the Roman Forum. If you've been to Rome and, and there's a staircase going down into the dungeon where Paul was, was kept, as tradition tells us. Go to the next slide. This is inside the, the dungeon itself today. It's well lit and it has a, a shrine there uh, uh, erected, you know. But in Paul's day, there were no lights in that dungeon. It was a damp, dungeony place. Uh, it used to be an old cistern, as a matter of fact. In fact, there were no stairs down to that prison in Paul's day. The prisoners were, were lowered down by a rope. And there Paul sat in, uh, as he wrote these words in A.D. 67. And so how did he get there? Well, in order to understand the scene of what brings Paul to this prison, we have to back up a little bit to A.D. 64. Because in A.D. 64, on the 19th of July, a great fire broke out in Rome. It blazed for nine days. One quarter of Rome was destroyed. And the people of Rome blamed Nero, the emperor, for the fire. The reason was because he was known to have wanted to expand his palace and his building projects and wanted to annex some of these sections of Rome. And so they blamed Nero. Most likely Nero was not responsible for the fire, but he needed a scapegoat to divert the attention of the crowds. And so uh, Nero blamed Christians for the fire. And thus began the great persecution of A.D. 64. He persecuted them without mercy, the believers. And the secular Roman historian Tacitus writes this, In order to suppress the rumor, Nero falsely blamed the people detested for their abominable crimes who were called Christians. Christus, whom they were named after, had suffered the extreme penalty at the hands of Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. Christians were executed by being ripped to death by dogs, being fixed to crosses, or being set on fire so that when daylight failed, they burned to serve as torches in the night. It is during this great persecution under Nero that somewhere between A.D. 64 and 67, Paul is re-arrested, and it is in this persecution that he will lose his life. Paul will be beheaded by the forces of Nero. How did this arrest came to, come to be? We have no account exactly as to how Paul was arrested, but there is a hint in 2 Timothy 4.14. We'll get there, but he makes this, this allusion. He says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. It is tempting to see that as a betrayal that somehow led to his final arrest, arrest and here, uh, Paul is sitting in the, the dungeon as he writes these words. And to make matters worse, most of his friends have fled and they have, have betrayed him. The only one who remains at his side is Dr. Luke. 
And so Paul writes this letter, which turns out to be his last words to his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy is in Ephesus at this time, and he writes these words, and it's a tender letter. It's a more personal letter than any of Paul's uh, other letters to Timothy particularly. It's a pastoral letter because Paul recognizes that uh, Timothy's ministry is not going to be easy, but he must be equipped to continue the work, and it's also a practical letter. He wants Timothy to be well-armed, to be well-suited for the task, and so he gives great advice on how to serve the Lord. In fact, the bulk of the letter is advice uh, from the Apostle Paul to Timothy in terms of how to keep his continued ministry thriving. Now, uh, uh, we get the tenderness of the the relationship in the first few verses, so follow with me in chapter 1, verse 2. This is how he starts out the letter. He says, To Timothy, my dear son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. You get a sense of the relationship between the Apostle Paul and Timothy in these opening words. There was a tenderness there. There There's a family feeling there. As Paul's life is soon to be ended, he senses that and he reaches out to those, this one that he loves. Now, each of the chapters we can assign a a theme to. Now, Paul didn't write the letter with chapter divisions. We did that later. But as we look at these chapter divisions, they do divide themselves up into some uh, easily observed themes. And so the theme of chapter 1 is this, hold fast. That's the theme of chapter 1. Go down to verse 13. He says, What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. That word that the NIV translates keep in many of your English translations is hold fast. Hold fast to the pattern of sound teaching that you've seen in me. Hold fast to the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way that you have seen me proclaim it, hold fast to that as you seek to serve him. Now that causes me to pause. What a blessing it is to be able to say to your children or to your children in the faith, or to your grandchildren to say, the pattern that you've seen in my life, that's what I want you to hold fast to do. What you have seen me, how you have seen me serve the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what I want you to keep in mind as you go forward. Rather than disregard the things that I've been doing in life and listen to my words, not my deeds, Paul says, I want you to see what I've done. I want you to observe my life. That is the pattern for you to follow. What a blessing it is to be able to say that to those who come after. Paul is not bragging, but the reality is he has sought to serve the Lord with every inch of his being, with all of his fiber, and he says, Peter, hold fast to that example. Hold fast to that because you and I, Peter, we are, uh, Peter, Timothy, we are part of an eternal work, something planned from the beginning of time. Go back to, to go over to chapter 1, back to verse 9, in the beginning of verse 9. He says uh, in the middle, go ahead, the the sentence in the middle where it says, This grace, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You're part of something much bigger than yourself, Timothy, he's saying, and I've been part of it too. We are part of of the work of God that he planned before time began. So hold fast to that. It is eminently worthy and it is even worth suffering for. And we can claim that exact same thing today. Don't be timid as you live your life for Jesus Christ. 
The life you live for Jesus Christ and the gospel that you live for has been planned from the beginning of time. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a gift, you have a calling, and as you live out that calling, you are part of what God is doing on the earth. Hold fast to that. Don't be timid about that and recognize that that is worth suffering for, even as the Apostle Paul was suffering. And as we hold fast to that ministry and pursue that calling, God shows up with us to enable us to accomplish His will. Look down at verse 12. He says, That is why I am suffering as I am, yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him for that day. Jesus is walking right alongside me. I am entrusting to Him my faith and my effort, and He is able to help me, and I am convinced He will see me through. The theme of chapter 1 is hold fast. The theme of chapter 2 is be strong. Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as he moves on throughout the the, the rest of chapter 2, he begins to give examples of the kind of strength that he's calling Timothy and us to. He says, I want you to be strong as a soldier is strong. Verse 3. Endure hardships with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, I want you to be free of lesser entanglements. Soldiers who are caught up in the battle, they know where the enemy is, they know what the struggle is to be, and they don't get sidetracked from that issue. Keep that in mind. Have a warfare mentality, he says. Be strong. And he says, I want you to be strong also like an athlete. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, an athlete competes according to the rules. And you, as you live for Jesus Christ, you have a rule book. Compete strongly according to the standards of Almighty God. Live by the guidebook that He gives you. Stick to the rules, in other words. And He says also be strong like a farmer. A farmer who works hard to put in the crops in the field and then he waits patiently to see the results, but he reaps a harvest of reward. Be strong to pursue the working of the faith. He uses these word images. But then He also says in chapter 2, you're to be strong to resist certain things. Go down to verse 12. Excuse me, verse 22. He says, here's where you're needing to be strong to resist. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Some of your translations read, flee youthful lusts. And it doesn't just mean sexuality, but it does include that. Those things that we would get caught up in, get sidetracked in, especially those, uh, those issues of sexuality in, in young adulthood where hormones are raging. Peter, uh, uh, Timothy was probably right there at this time in his life, and he's saying to Timothy, swim against the tide of your culture in sexuality. Swim against the tide of the kind of sin that you see all around us, both in the first century and the 21st century. We need to be reminded of that. Be strong to resist that. And then he says, be strong to resist the empty quarrels that some people want to get you caught up in. Look at verse 23. Do not have anything to do with the foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Back in that day and still in our day, there seems to be a subculture inside the Christian church of quarreling. A subculture that enjoys verbal jousting with one another, seeking to win the day in some kind of competitive spirit. And it's fine to talk about theology. And it's fine to talk about doctrine. But there comes a moment, even in the words of the Apostle Paul, when it develops into stupid arguments. And he says, have a sensitivity to that. Don't get caught up into that because the danger is that it becomes about pride. And it becomes about winning. 
And the collateral damage in those kinds of quarrels and arguments is that there are those around who become convinced that they can no longer look to the Scriptures and simply read it and derive a blessing for themselves. Somehow they feel inferior to be able to do that, unable to be able to get the blessing that God wants. And that's dangerous, he says to Timothy. Don't get caught up in that subculture of quarreling. Stay away from that because it causes divisions. The theme for chapter 2 is be strong. The theme for chapter 3 is know this. Chapter 3, verse 1. But mark this, or know this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Know this. Persecution will come. Paul is already in the midst of it in his context. And it's not going to stop. It's not going to get easier. Oh, there will be ebbs and flows. Sometimes will be more obvious, sometimes less. But right now in our world, this verse is coming to pass. Persecutions will come. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. He reinforces it. More generally, he says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I cringe at that verse. I don't like that verse. I don't like the universality of it. I don't like the everyone of it. I don't like the fact that it seems that the only way that I'm going to be able to escape persecution or suffering in some way for my faith is if I water down the faith so it doesn't really make a difference. I cringe at that. But I want you to know that I need this verse. I need it on both sides of its meeting. I need it to know that if I never experience any pushback to the, because of the difference that my faith is making in my life, maybe my faith is not making enough difference in my life. I need to be reminded of that. And I need to know from this verse that if I do experience pushback, if I do experience rejection and anger because of the way that I'm seeking to live for Jesus Christ, God tells me from His Word, you're still okay. I need to be reminded from a verse like this that not everyone has to like me, but I have to live a godly life. And you need this verse for the exact same reasons. Everyone who seeks To live a godly life will be persecuted. I cringe at it, but I need it. We need it. Know this, trouble is out there. Know this, however, that there is power in the Word of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Know this. You are fully equipped when you know the Word. I want to step back and just remind you of something. It is totally logical that God would reveal Himself and His standards through the Word, through words once for all delivered for us to read, to study, and to know. It is eminently logical that He would do that. Author Alex McFarlane makes this case. He says, can you imagine a world with no measurements of any kind? A world with no systems, with no standards, with no clocks, with no currency, with no math. Imagine a world where those things don't exist, where everything is always up for grabs. Imagine a world where 1 plus 1 doesn't equal 2, it equals 13, and only when you want it to. Nothing, nothing is ordered or standardized. What would be the result in a society in such a world? Well, it would be chaos. It would be anarchy. A rule and a standard is needed. A rule and standard is expected so that we might orderly uh, live together. And just as a rule and a standard is expected in society, so it is expected in the spiritual realms. And that is why God moved past general revelation. 
what we see in the stars and the heavens and the created order, that general revelation that throughout all of history always caused human beings to sense that there was a being greater than us responsible for all of this. But God moved past that to special revelation to give us words that tells us about Himself. In the Scripture, God reveals Himself verbally so that we can understand Him. And it is necessary that He comes to our level in words and tells us things that we would not otherwise know. Just like a mother who gets down to the level of her child and cups that face in her hands and says, let me tell you, honey, this is what you need to know, speaking on that child's level. So God comes to us through the Word of God because words are needed to more fully communicate the specifics He wants us to know. It is logical that God gives us more of Himself through the words that He has inspired in the Bible. And so we hold here His special revelation. And Paul says, Scripture is God-breathed. It is, he is the source of what you hold here in your hand. And what does He do? Through the Word, He says, He teaches. The Word of God teaches. We are taught the things that no one but God knows, and we would not realize if we didn't have this Word of God. Romans 1.17 says this, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Bible instructs us in what we ought to know about God, what we ought to believe about God and ourselves. The Bible instructs us in how we ought to live. The Scripture is meant to shape your life. It teaches. But while it teaches, it also rebukes. You see, teaching is positive. We learn new things. We, we love the exploration and understanding. But while we learn, we see that there are some things that don't go along with what God's teaching us. And so things need to change. And we are rebuked in some aspect of our lifestyle. We are called to change and to be more conformed to the way God calls us to live. The Bible teaches. The Bible rebukes. And thirdly, the Bible corrects. Now, I wonder how you hear that word. Usually, we hear the word correct as a negative. You know, if you're talking to someone at a party and you're telling about something that you saw, you read, or you experienced, and somebody walks alongside you and says, well, let me correct you about that. The hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit. What do you mean, correct me? You know, that, that sounds negative. But I want you to see something wonderful here in this verse. That word that we translate into English, correct, is that is the only time that Greek word appears in all of the Bible. And it is a very special, uh, has a very special meaning. It is not just pointing out a problem. It is taking something and setting it straight. It is manipulating something that is bent into a straight order once again. In other words, what that word says is that the Word of God does not just criticize. The Word of God gives us solutions for how we are to live and what we are to do. It points the way to be right, to be straight. It corrects in that regard and provides training in the end point of that verse. Once again, here is that training like a parent would train a child in the process of growing up in maturity. And God uses His Word to speak to our hearts and to grow in grace. Know this, Paul says, you are equipped when you know the Word of God. The theme for chapter 4 then, as we move on, could be preach this. Actually, Preach the Word. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul sees Timothy as his successor. One of the things we talk about here at Quail often, just yesterday at the leadership meeting, we reviewed it again, and that is success without successors is failure. 
We need to have somebody who's going to pick up the torch, somebody we're handing off to. And Paul sees that in his son in the faith, Timothy. And so, Timothy, preach the word. Just like you've seen in me, preach the word because the time is near that I'm not going to be around. Look at verse 6. Pastor Wayne started with this verse saying, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul reviews his life, like most people do. These are the last words. His days are short now, and he reviews his life, and this is what he comes up with. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Turn that sentence backwards, and you see that keeping the faith is like a race. Keeping the faith is like a fight. And when you put those two images into the sentence of what it means to keep the faith, we become convinced that keeping the faith is hard. There is strain in keeping the faith. The boxer boxes and gets knocked down in the fight, but gets up in order to achieve. The runner runs a little faster every day, past the limits of yesterday to enable him to do better tomorrow. Keeping the faith is hard. When you see this imagery from the pen of the Apostle Paul, we must banish the idea that Christianity means I pray a prayer and let Jesus into my heart and then everything will be easy and well-funded for the rest of my life. And if there's a challenge in some way, it must be that I'm outside the will of God. Paul would not have thought that. Here he is in a dungeon saying, I've kept the faith. Keeping the faith is hard because you have an enemy who does not want you to trust. Keeping the faith is hard because we have a nature that is corrupted. Keeping the faith is hard because there remains in all of us a tendency to trust our own preferences and desires even over what we hear God Almighty saying in His Word. That's why keeping the faith is hard. And so it is a struggle. You must choose humility day in and day out. A second thing that's implied by these image, these, this image of keeping the faith is that keeping the faith is running towards a destination. Keeping the faith means keeping it to the end, all the way, until faith turns into sight. I'm reminded about a, a marathon. I read in a paper not too long ago about a race. They were raising money. They were running a marathon to raise money for a good cause. And um, I, I congratulate those people who do that, run marathons. I've never run a marathon. I have no plans to ever run a marathon. <laughs> Running a marathon is not on my bucket list. But let's just say, in a moment of weakness, I signed up and I got ready to run at the starting gun of a marathon. Put on my number, put on my running shoes, and off I go. And I start to run that marathon. Paid my fee and start off with the big crowd of runners at the starter's gun. And about a mile into the race, you see me duck down an alley and head for a Starbucks. <laughs> and I started telling everybody around that Starbucks that I just ran the marathon. You would know that I was not being truthful when I said that. You would not see me as a truthful person in that situation, even if I started to nuance my conversation. The way the politicians nuance their conversation on TV. Even if I said, hey, I ran in the marathon. Technically right. Just a mile in. But as soon as you see the videotape of me ducking into that Starbucks, you would count me as a deceptive person. Because we know when we say we run the marathon, run in the marathon, it means run to the end. And it's the same in the race of faith. We run until faith turns into sight. We keep the faith, the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the faith in a church, not the faith in a system or a faith in a man, but faith in Him, your Savior. 
And when you have faith in an individual, what does it mean? It means you take them at their word, you count on them to live up to what they say, you have confidence in their promises, and you listen to their advice. That's what it means when you say, I have faith in that individual. And it's exactly the same in your faith with Jesus Christ. You take Him at His word. You count on Him. You have confidence in Him, and you listen to His advice. That's the kind of faith that Paul has kept. That's the kind of faith Paul wants you to keep until the end. Because the one in whom you have faith is infinitely worthy, totally powerful, and infinitely a person of integrity. He will, say, he will do what he said he will do. And so along this journey of faith, God has given Paul partners, those that he loves and those that he needs. And as we come to the end of chapter 4, we see that partnership in action. Actually, verse 9 and then verse 21, here's the tenderness. In verse 9, Paul says, Do your best to come to me quickly. Verse 21, Do your best to get here before winter. Paul ends the letter with a plea to Timothy, Hurry and come. Hurry and come. If you read the details there, he says, Bring Mark, another partner in the gospel. Bring him. He's, he's good for me. He says, bring my cloak. It is cold in that dungeon where he's spending his time. And he says, bring my papers. There's nothing to do in that dungeon. But he wants to spend the time studying and reading by the dim lamplight he, he might have had because he knows that the end is near. And you look back over the body of this brief letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, and we remember that this letter was written just as much to us as it was to Timothy. Paul had Timothy in mind but the Holy Spirit had us in mind. For each of us has a role that we are to play, a calling that we are to live out, and for each of us, the themes of the chapters are absolutely to be applied. Hold fast. Be strong. Know the Word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word by what you do. Preach the Word by what you say. Be an example of a faithful follower keeping the faith. And what that means is this. One man has described it this way. Live your life in such a way that your life would not make sense if the gospel was not true. What I do, what I say, the way I live, and for you as well, it doesn't compute unless Jesus is who he said he is. And he is, and we rejoice. Paul kept the faith. May that be said of us as well. Amen? Amen. Amen.